The reading is from Exodus and it can be found on page 82 of the Church Bibles. It's chapter 24 beginning at verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here. And I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his assistant, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and her are with you and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered, covered it. cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord said to Moses, I tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen. Goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Have them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it, and fasten them to its forefeet, with two rings on one side, and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. 
The cherubim are to have their wings spread upwards, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. There, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelite, for the Israelites. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray, please, that you would help us as we think about the tabernacle and as we uh, understand more about how you instructed Moses to build that tabernacle and what it means for you to dwell among your people. Father, that you would teach us and instruct us and point us to Jesus. Amen. So as I said at the beginning, a big feature, a big theme of this passage that um, Sue just read the, the beginning of is to do with, well, the tabernacle, but really about can God and mankind live together? Can God dwell amongst people? That actually is a big theme of the Bible. At the beginning of the Bible, God makes mankind, makes Adam and Eve, and they are in the garden that God puts them in, and God walks with them. They can be together. But Adam and Eve are thrown out of the garden, having rebelled against God. But by the time you get to the end of the Bible, God is dwelling with people again. And you can see the whole of the Bible as being about how can people live with God? How can God dwell with people? What needs to happen for us to be able to come back to be with God. And this passage in Exodus about the tabernacle is about how God can dwell with his people. At this point in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel have been rescued from slavery in Egypt. We've seen that. And they've been brought to Mount Sinai. And Moses, we've seen, went up the mountain. And God descended on the mountain. God and man coming together again. And God gives to Moses the law, the Ten Commandments, and a whole load of other commandments, which John brilliantly preached on for us last week. God and man coming together. God speaking, giving the law. But the people of Israel were not going to stay at Mount Sinai. They weren't going to stay there in the presence of God. They were going to be taken to the promised land that God said he would give to them. But God said to them to build a tabernacle, a tent, that would be where he would dwell amongst the people, such that wherever they went, God could be with them. It was like a mobile Mount Sinai that would go with them wherever they were so that God was dwelling amongst his people. And God instructed Moses how to build the tabernacle with quite a lot of detail. 
And every bit of the tabernacle is significant and tells us something, teaches us something about how people can relate to God. And so we're going to have a tour of the tabernacle. I've uh, taped out in this part uh, the sort of floor plan of the tabernacle. So it goes from there, you'll see uh, uh, on the floor there, stretches up to here and goes up onto the chancel. So uh, it goes up where the communion rails go round uh, and to the back there. This is the size of the tabernacle. It's to scale. It's, it's not very big, really, is it? And let's take a tour of the tabernacle. Let's go through, item by item, what God told them to make. And so we start with the ark, the place to meet God. So that's back this way. Don't worry, I'll go this way. You stay there. The ark. This is the first item that God describes to Moses and tells him to build. It is a box about this size. So again, it's not huge, is it? A box about this size. And it was to be covered with gold on the inside and out. There were to be rings on it and poles put through the rings so that it could be carried. The poles kept in the rings so that you didn't, no one had to touch the ark. They could just lift it using the poles when it was to be moved. And inside the box, inside the ark, was to be the two stone tablets of the covenant law which had on them the Ten Commandments. They were to go inside the box, inside the ark. And a lid was to be put on the ark. And on that lid was to be the figures of two cherubim, like you can see on the, on the image on the screen. We don't know exactly how they made that, what those cherubim looked like, but we do know they had wings which were to come up over the ark that the faces of the cherubim were to be downwards. And it says, verse 21 and 22 of chapter 25, verse 21 and 22 says this, place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. There, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. This is the place where the people could meet God, where God would meet with his people. And the cover on the ark, the lid, was called the atonement cover or the mercy seat. Now, just consider this. Uh, if you happen to be someone who could go into the tabernacle, into the heart of the tabernacle. Now, actually, the only person who could was the high priest, and that only once a year. But if you were, if you could go in and you could see that ark, there is something missing that I don't have that. Oh, yeah, okay, I don't have the cherubim, and, you know, we didn't construct that. But there's something else missing. You see, this tells you a story, doesn't it? 
This says, if you're going to meet with God, God meets you over his word. Now that's significant, isn't it? God meets his people over his word. There is nowhere in the tabernacle where there is a statue of God. No, that would be to break one of the Ten Commandments. You can't do that. What's in this very core, the very heart of the tabernacle is God's word, which is a reminder that God's people are to be people of his word. But it also says, you meet with God according to his covenant. You meet with God according to his commandments. Obey the commandments, you can meet with God. But what's the thing that's missing? It's the blood. Uh, often when you say, see pictures of the ark or of bits of the, the, temp, the tabernacle, you'll see they look pristine. They're like they've just been unboxed. They, they, they just look brand new. But actually, if you'd gone through and you'd seen it, you'd have seen dried blood on the top, down the front. Because once a year, the high priest was to come in with blood from sacrifices. On the Day of Atonement, two sacrifices would be made. One for the high priest, one for the people. And he would bring the blood through into the Holy of Holies, this area here. And he would sprinkle it on top of the ark and down the front. And that tells a story as well, doesn't it? How can you meet with God? How can you meet with a holy God? You've got to obey his commands, but we don't obey his commands. And therefore, atonement must be made. Blood must be spilt. Animals must be sacrificed. And the blood put on here. That is how you can meet with God. That is the ark. Next, in the description, you have a look if you've got your Bibles open. What's described next? It's a table. And for this, we come down here, this table here. It was called the table of the presence. And uh, it too was covered in gold. Uh, it had a rim built around it. Uh, it may be more like that than this. Um, covered in gold with rings as well, with poles so that it could be carried, taken wherever they went. But the main thing about this table is that what was on it. There would be various things that, to put on it. There would be dishes and pitchers and bowls and plates and that kind of thing. But actually the main thing it seems is bread. That there were to be 12 loaves of bread put on this table. Why? What's the bread for? It's not for God. It's not like God said, I need bread, give me bread. In fact, nothing within this tabernacle is there, in a sense, to serve God, as if God needs anything. No, God doesn't need food. He doesn't need the sacrifices he doesn't need any of this God doesn't need anything it's all for the sake of the people as Paul says in the book of Acts the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands uh, he, he's not constrained by uh, he's not restricted to the tabernacle or the temple 
No, no. And he's not served by human hands as if he needs anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And therefore, the table and the bread on the table says, it is God who provides for you, Israel, God's people, everyone. God is the giver. He is the provider. He provided for his people in the desert, the manna, to eat bread day by day. He provided for them. That's what that table says. What's next? Next is, if you're still following in chapter 25, the lampstand. The lampstand, which didn't look anything like that. But I didn't have one of them. It's a lampstand with seven lamps on it. And as you read the description of the lampstand, you could be forgiven for thinking, hang on, what am I reading about here? Is it a lampstand or is it something else? Is it a tree? It looks a lot like a tree. A lot of the description is tree-like. Just have a look. Verse 31, chapter 25, verse 31. Make a lampstand of pure gold. Hammer out its base and shaft and make its flower-like cups, buds and blossoms of one piece with them. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side and three on the other, and so on. And as you go through the description, it's, it, most of the description is it's like a tree. You've got a tree-like thing, which is also a lamp giving light. And there are quite a lot of things in this tabernacle which are a lot like the Garden of Eden, right? At the beginning of the Bible, when God made man and woman and put them in the garden, there are lots of things in there which are a bit like that Garden of Eden. And one of them is the tree, because in the Garden of Eden there was the tree of life. And in the tabernacle there is a tree-like thing, which is obviously producing fruit, although it's made of gold. So what does the lampstand say? The lampstand says God is your light and your life. These things in this part, the table with the bread and the lampstand are saying you depend on God. He is your provider. He provides for you bread day by day. He provides you with light and life. You need God. And then you come to, well, what's next? The next chapter, actually, chapter 26, is what they've called the tabernacle, which is the tent. So chapter 26 is a description of how to build the tent, because this whole area that, we've, that I've marked out here is covered with a tent. In fact, there's more than one covering. You've got at least three coverings over it of different sorts, so it makes it waterproof and, uh, and that sort of thing. But you've got a tent going over it. And you've got the description in chapter 26 of the materials that they're to use, how they're to build it, the size of it, and the frames that they're to make. So they make the frames and they put the covers over it. And then towards the end of the chapter, it says, actually, there's to be a, a, a cover, there's to be a, a curtain within the tabernacle, which separates off that bit from this bit. This bit is the holy place. That is the most holy place. 
And so we'll draw the curtains. Colin, could you uh, draw that curtain? And I'll draw this one. Ah, now we're stuck on the wrong side, aren't we? Oops. Okay, so the curtain, which had... Oh, no, we've got a break in the curtain. Don't worry, we'll come back to it. Just imagine it's fully closed. The curtain had cherubim uh, on it. Which, again, takes you back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were taken out of the garden at the entrance, there were cherubim. There. How do you get back into God's presence? You've got to go past the cherubim, but the cherubim had a sword, a flaming sword. So you've got cherubim on there. I mean, that's not the only place they were on the tabernacle, but they were there, Garden of Eden-like. How do you get back in? You've got to go through the cherubim. And so what does the tabernacle, what does the tent say? It says, God is at home, but unavailable. That's what it said to the people. Because the tent covering... We're sort of saying, yeah, this is the tent. This is where God is. If you'd been an Israelite living, uh, living in, you know, around the tabernacle, which is how they lived, they were around it, you could look and you could see the tabernacle. Actually, there was a courtyard around the tent. So it goes further around. There was a kind of barrier around, a courtyard going around. But you could look at it and you go, God dwells among us. And then if someone had said to you, great, let's go in, let's go see him. You say, no, you can't go in. You can't actually go in there. No, no, you guys and I wouldn't be allowed in. Uh, we could go into the courtyard, but only priests could come in this bit. And only the high priest once a year could go in there. So it says, God's with us, God's here, but you can't come in. Not much. And that's the thing we have seen in Exodus before, isn't it? When God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, he called Moses to come to him, but don't come too near. On Mount Sinai, when God descended, Moses could go up, but the people couldn't. Here, the tabernacle, God's amongst them, dwelling amongst them, but you can't really go in. God's at home but unavailable. And then finally, there's the altar. I'm going to come over here, so if you you guys, you might need just to look around. You've got the altar, which is outside the tabernacle, outside the tent, and would have been much, much bigger than this. Seven foot by seven foot, big square. Now, what do you think of when you think of an altar? I think that it's going to be a table. It's not. It's a big fireplace. It's a furnace going up. Fire all the time in this big altar. And this is the place where people could come. There's only one entrance to uh, the whole tabernacle courtyard. So this is within the courtyard but outside the tent. There's only one entrance coming in through there. Now consider what this says to people about God, about God's presence amongst them. As they come into the courtyard, what do they see? An enormous fire. And this is the place of sacrifice. 
where animals were to be sacrificed so that sin could be dealt with. As people came in, it shouted to them saying, between you and God, you've got your sin that must be dealt with. And it can only be dealt with by death. So the altar, sin must be dealt with by death. And Philip Ryken in his book on Exodus says, imagine how many sacrifices were made. Every day, at least two burnt offerings, fellowship offerings were made. Whenever people were grateful to God, sin offerings, guilt offerings, think of all the bulls, the goats, lambs, pigeons required to atone for over a million people. And it went on for a thousand years. It said very loudly, sin is serious and must be dealt with. So this is the tabernacle. And you've also got the description of uh, the courtyard as well. This is the tabernacle. The ark, the bread, the light, the altar, and the covering. We said at the start, it was made to represent to show God dwelling amongst his people. Can people live in the presence of God? Can God dwell among people? What does this tabernacle say? It says we depend on God, we need God. But also that sin has to be dealt with. Blood must be taken through. Our wrongdoings must be dealt with for us to come to God. Interesting, isn't it? When God said to build something to say, I dwell among you, he didn't build a lounge that you could just come in and lounge around in. He didn't bring a psychiatrist's office so that you could come in, lie on a couch and tell him all your problems. Nor did he make a Santa's grotto for you to come in and just uh, say all the things that you would most like. He said, build a tabernacle, which says to the people, you need God, you depend on him. And that sin must be dealt with. We need the Lord, but we can't just relate to him freely. That's what it says. But something then happened to change all that, didn't it? Yes, it did. Something has happened to change this. So that we don't need the tabernacle anymore. We must learn the lessons from it, but we don't need it. What happened? Well, Jesus came. Over a thousand years after Moses was given these instructions, Jesus came. And John's gospel picks up on this kind of imagery of the tabernacle. At the beginning of John's gospel, in talking about Jesus, he talks about the word who was with God and was God. And uh, in chapter 1, verse 14, says this, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And when it says made his dwelling among us, more literally, that is, tabernacled among us. It's the same word. The word made, became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. Pitched his tent among us. Not in a tent, 
but in flesh, in the person of Jesus. And as you go through John's Gospel, there are various features of the tabernacle that John picks up on and mentions. In fact, some have observed, and I think this is right, that as you go through John's Gospel, speaking about the life of Jesus, he picks up on features of the tabernacle in a way which actually take you from outside the tabernacle through and in. Let me show you. None of them are actually in the the temple of the, the tabernacle. They are all fulfilled in Jesus. Let me show you. So he says at the beginning, the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, dwelt among us. That's Jesus, God living among us. Then in chapter one, a little later on, it says this, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist says that, doesn't he? Now what's the lamb of God? The lamb of God is a sacrifice for sin. It's like you come to the altar The ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate lamb, is Jesus. He will deal with the sin of the world. The high priest, the priests had to make sacrifices day by day, year after year. Hundreds and thousands of sacrifices made. But Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, only needs to be sacrificed once when he dies on the cross. Then in chapter 6 of John's Gospel, sorry, the altar, sin must be dealt with by death. Jesus fulfills that. Then in chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Jesus is the bread, the provision by God. Jesus says, come to me, And I will give you food that will mean that you never hunger again. This isn't just about your daily provision of your need for sustenance, your need for food, your need for lunch, which may be creeping up on you right now. It's not just about that. It's about Jesus saying, I can give you meaning, purpose, what life is all about. I am the bread of life. And then in John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The lampstand. God is your light and life. Jesus is the light of the world. This is saying you need Jesus to provide for you, to give you meaning, purpose, light, direction, everything you need in life. Come to him for what you need. So often we look to other things, don't we? We look to ourselves, we look to other people, we look to other things to give us meaning and purpose when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world. We need to come to him. Okay, so what about the ark, the place to meet God? Where's that in John's gospel? Other gospels, accounts of Jesus' life, point to the cross and say that when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Let's just draw the curtain again. 
That'll do. It's still there. Other Gospels say that when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And that's absolutely right. That is what happened. And that shows that God is saying you can now come in through the blood of what Jesus did on the cross, through his blood shed. Interesting, John doesn't go there, which I think is really intriguing. But John does talk about blood, which the other Gospels don't talk about so much. When Jesus has died on the cross, it says this. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. John focuses on the blood shed. This is the blood that's needed. The fulfilment of the blood that the high priest would take in every year and sprinkle on the ark. This is the blood. And, and I'm intrigued whether you'll go with me on this, I quite like this. After Jesus has died, been put in the tomb for three days and risen to life again, Mary goes in the tomb and what does she see in the tomb? And saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Like the cherubim? One at the head, one at the foot, two angels. What's that saying about where you meet with God? You meet with God at the cross and the empty tomb. We don't need the ark. In fact, we can lift our eyes higher and we can see the cross. And we see that is the place at the cross of Jesus where we can meet with God. And we can come in. Right into the presence of God. And this is where the the New Testament takes us. The book of Hebrews takes us here. The tabernacle. Ah, now God is available. Hebrews 10 says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God. Hebrews is saying, because Jesus' blood was shed, you and I, we can come into the most holy place, into the holy of holies, not the tabernacle, not the tent, but the real thing that the tabernacle pointed to. We can come into the presence of God and we can call him Father and we can come in whenever we like into the very presence of God. And therefore, Hebrews says, because you and I can come in through the blood of Jesus, shed for us, Hebrews says, so draw near. Don't stay outside. Don't think your sin, your wrongdoing, keeps you from the presence of God. Now any can be made clean and can come into God's presence through Jesus. Have you done that yet? Oh, we can't just stroll into God's presence on our own merits. No, it has to be through the blood of Jesus. But with the blood of Jesus, any can come in with confidence. Have you come in to God? And will you enjoy the fact, if you're a Christian, will you enjoy the fact that day by day, any time you want... You can talk to God, come into his presence through the blood of Jesus.
Can God and mankind live together? The answer is yes. Through Jesus, through the ultimate sacrifice, through him fulfilling the tabernacle, that he fulfills the altar. He is the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God. He fulfills the bread of the presence. He is the bread of life. He fulfills the lampstand. He's the light of the world. And he fulfills the blood needed in order for us to be able to meet with God and dwell with God. And one day, all who have trusted in Christ will live with God for eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that for these instructions. What a wonderful visual aid. Thank you that through it we see how we can live with you, how we can dwell with you, that we depend on you for your provision day by day in this life and in the next, that you are our light and our life. And thank you that through Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice has been made, the blood has been shed, and we can meet with you through him. Thank you for Jesus. Help us, each one of us, to come into your presence through him. Amen.